Here's what's coming up today on the Prove Me Wrong podcast. I can say from my understanding of the physics that this will be a complete and total waste of money, that reducing greenhouse gases has zero effect on cooling the earth. And I explain that at physically-impossible.com as clearly as I can. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Prove Me Wrong podcast. I'm your host, Pete Lieb, and I'm glad you're on board with me today. I am very fortunate to have a great show lined up for you. Uh, We're going to talk climate change today. Hopefully some of the realities, the effects, the causes, that's definitely a hot-button topic, and I am lucky to have my guest today, Dr. Peter Langdon Ward. Dr. Ward is the author of the book, What Really Causes Global Warming. He is a geophysicist who retired from the United States Geological Survey in 1998 after 27 years studying volcanoes, earthquakes, plate tectonics, and regional geology. In 2006, he found well-documented evidence that there was a major volcanism at the end of the last ice age, implying that volcanism may have caused the warming. So his research has led him down a different path, and he now offers an alternative perspective from the scientific consensus that he calls ozone depletion theory and not greenhouse gases. Anyone over a certain age like I am is familiar with ozone layer depletion and kind of the fear that went over about the ozone layer, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. You can find out more information on his websites, including a listing of nine reasons why greenhouse warming theory is mistaken. His websites are whyclimatechanges.com and physically-impossible.com. And Dr. Ward is actually challenging anyone in the world to prove him wrong. I like the fact that he's come on the podcast and says, prove me wrong. He's challenging them to find any significant error on a single web page that could change his conclusion that greenhouse warming theory is not only mistaken, it is not physically possible. So with all of that, let me welcome Dr. Peter Langdon Moore to the Prove Me Wrong podcast. Well, Peter, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So my first question is, is the world actually warming? I mean, is there real documented evidence that the world is warming the way that uh, we hear? Yes, the the uh... There's four major different sources of temperature analysis about the world, and they all agree Mm -hmm. that from 1945 to 1970, there was very little warming. From 1970 to 1998, there was about six-tenths of a degree centigrade, degree and a half Fahrenheit warming. From 1998 to 2013, there was very little warming. It's a period of time known as the global warming hiatus. And then from 2014 to 16, we warmed three-tenths of a degree in two years. This was three times faster mm-hmm. than the earlier warming. And since 2016, we've been cooling. So how are they measuring that the temperature is going up? What instruments are they using, and where are these instruments located? The instruments I'm talking about, the data I'm talking about, are thermometers uh-huh. that are either mounted on land, typically a few yards above the surface, or they may be water temperature uh, in the oceans uh, collected by ships. That there are, uh, I've forgotten the number, but there are millions and millions of these data. And what the different analyses have done have, one, found out what the trend is long-term, and then they plot the data, uh, how much it varies from that trend uh, by uh, essentially break up the earth into into squares and or into blocks and then for each block take the average temperature it's a very sophisticated process uh, what's most interesting is the three initial efforts were NOAA NASA and uh, a group in England a fourth group in Berkeley decided these other three groups must be wrong so mm-hmm. they set out to do the same thing and they just came up with the same answer with a little different approach so, so it's not a debate. The world is warming. And so these thermometers, do they move them? Do they adjust them? I know I've also heard that a lot of those thermometers were put in place maybe before the area was more industrialized. Now there's more of a heat sink uh, effect than there used to be. You know, they're, they're still sitting in the same spot that used to be a field. And now it's a parking lot. And so it's going to be hotter during the day and hotter at night just because of conducting the heat or absorbing the heat in the day and then releasing it at night. How do they account for that type of activity? Well, the 
this is something called the urban heat island effect. Uh And uh, it is a real change. I mean, a lot of these temperature measurements go back into the 1800s. And there's been a lot of development since then. And that is a concern. But if we jump ahead from where we are now to where we're going to go, hopefully in this podcast, I'm arguing that it's depletion of the ozone layer Mm -hmm. that allows more ultraviolet B radiation from the sun to reach Earth. That's a very hot radiation that burns your skin, causes cataracts, causes skin cancer. Um, That is the hottest radiation from the sun to reach Earth. Now, ultraviolet B, the reason if you deplete the ozone layer is that you don't absorb as much of that ultraviolet B. When that ultraviolet B reaches Earth, it can be absorbed by ground-level ozone. Ground-level ozone is something produced from car exhaust, manufacturing, uh, all kinds of other uses. And we map it very, very carefully all around the world. And we find that at, at ground level, at several meters above ground level, that the ozone increases in industrial areas. So if ozone depletion is in fact causing the warming, it's also causing the urban heat island effect and may have a much stronger effect than just the fact that it's a parking lot or that there's a bunch of industry there now or not. I mean, what we do know is the warming was greatest in the Northern Hemisphere by a factor of two. Mm -hmm. The warming in the Northern Hemisphere was twice as great as the warming in the Southern Hemisphere. 90% of the world population lives in the Northern Hemisphere. 90% of the pollution plus. I don't think it's worth arguing about whether we've warmed or not. It's pretty darn clear. Everybody agrees. It's the better part of a a degree centigrade uh, since 1945. And people want to go back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution or something. Mm-hmm. It's more than that. Uh, there are a lot of smart people who looked at that data over and over and over. And I just don't see any basis to argue that there is a significant difference happening in the world compared to what they measured, what they concluded. So what what is the effect you know, of that, that small of an increase over that period of time? What are the effects that we would see? Well, first of all, the number, when I say a degree centigrade, that is world average. Mm-hmm. What we see in the in the polar regions is maybe five, six, seven degrees. Oh, wow. Okay, so there can be a huge difference. And in, in, in mid-latitudes, we can be talking a degree or two or three. The greatest warming in the world measured that changed during this time was on the Antarctic Peninsula in Antarctica. And there we're talking seven, eight degrees. So, Dr. Ward, if you could take just another moment and recap for me again how you got involved in the study of climate change. It wasn't something that you did as part of your job. How did you become involved in that? I retired in 1998, moved to Jackson, Wyoming to have fun and climb mountains uh-huh. and uh, in uh, raft rivers. And in 2006, while I was doing something quite different, I found data on the Internet that implied that the period of greatest warming at the end of the last ice age, 12,500 years ago to 9,500 years ago or whatever, that was exactly the time of the best evidence in Greenland ice for volcanism. And I said, wait a minute, I've studied volcanoes all my life, and I know, and all volcanologists know, that big explosive volcanic eruptions cause cooling. Mm -hmm. Mount Pinatubo, 1991 formed an aerosol in the lower stratosphere that reflected and scattered sunlight. The world cooled about a half a degree centigrade for about three years. This has been observed throughout all of human history. Any major explosive volcano causes cooling. And I said, wait a minute, how could volcanoes also cause warming? Right. And the more I looked into that, the more I said, whoa, these data are good. There's really nothing to quibble about here in terms of these data. There was major warming and there was major volcanism. And how can we explain that? So then I started looking more carefully at everything to do with climate change. And I began to question many different things. And it got more and more interesting. So the scientific consensus then is greenhouse gases, CO2, changing the climate. You are obviously saying something completely different than that. And that reducing carbon emissions will not affect the climate at all. Why not? Well, it turns out there's a fundamental mistake we made in physics a couple hundred years ago about how we calculate heat, how we calculate flux of thermal energy. And this turns out to be mistaken. Mm. And yet it is the basis of greenhouse warming theory. 
And so one of the things that we, we basically looked at heat as a flux of the amount of thermal energy passing through a, an area uh, per unit time. And um, this has been well understood for 200 years, but it turns out not to be correct. Heat is what a body of matter must absorb to make it hotter. I think we all can agree on that. Right. And heat is what a body must lose to make it colder. It turns out in 1900 that Max Planck, one of the fathers of modern physics, um, plotted what's now known as Planck's Law, showing that temperature in matter is a function of frequency of oscillation and amplitude of oscillation. And we now know that those frequencies and amplitudes are the frequencies of oscillation of all the bonds that hold matter together. So when you heat matter, the frequencies of oscillation increase and the amplitudes of oscillation increase. And so to warm matter, you have to increase those frequencies, you have to increase those amplitudes. You can't do it by just absorbing some amount of energy, which is the way greenhouse warming theory currently thinks about it. So that's the fundamental difference in physics. And it turns out, I mean, the way to understand it is most people, if you ask them how heat travels, argue that either it's waves or it's particles. And for 2,500 years, we've been debating this light, does heat, does light travel as waves or particles? And in the modern physics, we say wave-particle duality. What I'm saying from very clear observations of nature, what we observe is that heat is a broad spectrum of frequencies and that these frequencies propagate by resonance. The concept that it's a continuum of frequencies and they propagate by resonance is totally new. It's something I've discovered, and it's all based on direct observation of nature. The scientific consensus then that still holds that greenhouse, why do they continue to say then that greenhouse gases are the cause and that the reduction of CO2 is the answer? How is that consensus derived? I know I keep hearing a lot about this 90, it's, you know, 97% consensus of scientists. How do we get that 97% number? Let's talk about the history first, how, sure. before how we get that 90% number or 98.2% or whatever number they want to use. Um, greenhouse warming theory is something that has been developed over a couple hundred years. And uh, Fourier said back in 1820, 1822, that if Earth loses less heat into space, than it gets from sun, it must get hotter. And so this, this follows the old-fashioned idea that heat's kind of like a liquid. The more of it you have, the hotter you are. Mm -hmm. And that turns out to be the fundamental mistake. Anyway, jump ahead to 1859, and John Tyndall in Great Britain found that greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide, methane, and so on, absorb some energy radiated by Earth, infrared energy radiated by Earth. In 1898, 96, uh, Arrhenius proposed that if you doubled the amount of carbon dioxide, this would cause a warming of maybe five degrees or whatever. And he kind of backed into that number because he wanted to use uh, greenhouse gases to explain the difference in ice ages. And there was some evidence that ice ages were perhaps a difference of five degrees centigrade or whatever. And he he didn't do any experiments. He, he said he should have, but he didn't. Um, he just came up with a, a justification and a way of calculating heat that showed that, yeah, about five degrees difference uh, could be explained by greenhouse gases. Then in 1900, just four years later, Knut Angstrom, a radiation physicist and a friend of Arrhenius, showed in the laboratory that greenhouse gases cannot cause the warming that's observed. And at that point, most physicists lost interest. It was 1938 mm -hmm. when Guy Callender, a steam engineer in England, brought the whole idea back. And he dismissed Arrhenius, I mean, he dismissed Angstrom just with a few words in boxes and boxes of notes. He just said Angstrom didn't know what he was talking about. That's it. And that brought the whole thing back. And actually, to jump ahead, what's really interesting looking back now, I am the first person trained in physics since Nut Angstrom, that I can find evidence for having really stopped and thought hard about the physics of warming, about how global warming can occur. The current thought process is that CO2 rises 
which makes more heat, when in reality it's probably more heat creates more CO2. Does that make sense? Oh, in one place that's very clear, and that's in the oceans. Uh -huh. I mean, we see records over the last uh, 100,000 years or whatever of warming and cooling, and when the, when the, when the oceans are warming, they're emitting more CO2 into the atmosphere. Right. When the oceans are cooling, they're taking more CO2 out of the atmosphere. Mount Pinatubo eruption, 1991, erupted a huge amount of CO2. But the increase in CO2 that was going on in Hawaii actually stopped for three years. That's because the aerosols cooled the surface of the ocean a half a degree. The ocean was absorbing more CO2. So there's direct data, direct evidence uh, in our lifetime that we we've measured it very very carefully where it's clear that the, we know what the solubility of co2 is in water we know that when we have a cold beer on the on the counter in front of us and we talk too much it loses its fizz mm, right. the co2 goes out into the air so in that case is a very clear relationship now in terms of how co2 causes a warming of earth turning it around which is what greenhouse warming theory is all about what it's saying is if you increase the CO2 content of the atmosphere, Earth will get warmer. How that works actually is rather interesting. There's not a big agreement on it. But in my website, physically-impossible.com, I start out with the definition of what scientists today think is the cause. And then I show how that just can't be. Physically, it doesn't make sense. I've asked some people who believe in, you know, reducing CO2. We have to reduce our carbon footprint. And I've asked them, you know, what number do you want to be at? What number is right for you? If you say you're 400 parts per million now, what's the right number? Plants are dying below, what, 150 or 180, something like that? I mean, I mean, actually, an increase in CO2 is actually good for the planet in a lot of ways, correct? I mean, it, it greens up the planet. Yeah, I mean, they, they put CO2 in greenhouses uh, in order to grow plants better. Right. Um I mean, too much CO2. If the atmosphere was 80% CO2, we'd all be dead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, but when you're talking about 0.04% uh, and increasing that a little bit, four hundredths of a percent, right. adding some helps grow. I think what we need to look at here is that the idea of greenhouse warming has a long history. Most scientists that are working in this area grew up with the idea. All the books they've used, all the teachers they had talked about the idea. Most scientists today that are working on climate are convinced that the science as they know it shows that the warming we're observing is being caused by greenhouse gases. And the line that's been drawn in the sand really by the Paris Accord was to try to agree to keep the rise in temperature to less than two degrees centigrade and if we could get away with it, less than one and a half degrees centigrade. Well, we've already risen a degree centigrade. So mm -hmm. anyway, one of the things, a lot of the skeptics about climate change like to attribute motives to the scientists, one thing or another. They just want money. They just, whatever. I know a lot of the climate scientists, and uh, they are all very concerned that as the sciences, they understand it, they're convinced that Earth is in for trouble within decades and that we need to do something right about it now. The problem I'm having is I've known most of my conclusions since 2015 when I wrote my book. Mm -hmm. I have been trying very hard to get many of the lead scientists, many of whom I know and talk to regularly, to step back and look at what I'm saying and seriously consider it. And they simply won't. They simply cannot deal with the concept that greenhouse warming theory might be slightly mistaken. I know that that Inconvenient Truth movie came out, what is that, late 90s maybe? I mean, even maybe early 2000? And wasn't one of the predictions at that point that by now there would be some dramatic flooding and then there would be some really significant environmental changes already by now? So they believe what they're saying. They really feel like there are some severe impacts coming within the next decade or two, but they've been saying that for two decades, right? Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is that the models, the computer models you hear so much about are based on data from 1970 to 1998. Right. The CO2 was increasing and the temperature was increasing. And they've been tuned for that. 
And then in 1998, things didn't change. The temperature wasn't increasing. And there were hundreds of papers coming out saying, what's wrong here? Because the scientists knew at that point that if the temperature was not increasing for a while, that might show that they were wrong. Well, ultimately, after five or six years, it began to talk about this period of no increase as the global warming hiatus. And I, I list on my website over 50 papers that are peer-reviewed scientific papers trying to explain the global warming hiatus. In hindsight, you really can't disagree. The, te the temperatures did not change much from, from 1998 to 2013. And yet CO2 was continuing to increase. What was your hypothesis for that? I mean, what, what have you come up with that, that would show why that is? Well, what's really interesting is that in the 1960s, we started producing chlorofluorocarbon gases, CFCs. Right. Yeah. They're used for refrigerants. They're used for spray can propellants. They're a very inactive, very inert chemical that was really good for spray can propellants, for example, because they just didn't react chemically with anything you put in the spray can. And so we started using more and more of these. And starting around 1970, we found that the concentration of CFCs in the atmosphere began to increase, the ozone depletion began to increase, and the temperature began to increase. In 1974, um, two scientists discovered that the ozone depletion might be caused by the breakdown of these chlorofluorocarbons by ultraviolet energy that's in the stratosphere, and that this could lead to major destruction of the, of the ozone layer because by releasing one atom of chlorine in the stratosphere under the right conditions, you could destroy 100,000 molecules of ozone. So that was 1974, and ultimately in 1995, those two physicists and one other got the Nobel Prize for that discovery. So scientists began to worry in the 70s, we got a problem here, but we don't think it's that big a deal. In 1985, we suddenly discovered the Antarctic ozone hole. Mm -hmm. And it was huge. It was a, a major decrease uh, during the, the winter, uh, springtime in, the, in Antarctica. And all of a sudden, the scientists said, this is a lot bigger problem than we thought. And within two years, the scientists and political leaders at the UN were able to pass the Montreal Protocol, which restricted the increase in the production of CFC gases. Well, what's interesting is that took effect in 89. In 93, the increase of CFC gases in the atmosphere stopped. In 95, the increase in ozone depletion stopped. In 1998, the 14, there was no increase in temperature. There was not much change in ozone depletion. The ozone layer was thinner because we had thinned it out um, during the time that the temperature was warming. Then in 2014, suddenly we start warming again. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered that what happened then was the basaltic eruption of Bardabunga volcano in Iceland. And this is exactly where I started. What I discovered with the ice sheet and the record of volcanism was that basaltic volcanism that led, particularly from Iceland, led to, global, led to ozone depletion, which led to global warming. And so uh, I argue that the warming from 2014 to 2016 was the result of Bardabunga. The warmest year on record was 2016. But as we find with these lava flows, that after they have not been active for a couple of years, we start cooling again. And this explains why 17 and 18 were much cooler. So, but again, it's basaltic volcanism, like the kind of stuff we see at Craters of the Moon National Monument in Idaho, where there's just this black rock that goes for long distances. Mm -hmm. Or in Hawaii, for that matter, but the volume in Hawaii is very small. Throughout geologic time, whenever we see these big black basaltic lava flows, we find periods of major warming. In one case, 251 million years ago, the lavas covered an area of Siberia almost the size of the United States. Wow. I mean, just imagine basaltic lava going all the way from New York to San Francisco. The oceans were warmed up to hot tub temperatures, 104 degrees Fahrenheit, 40 degrees centigrade. I mean, and this was the greatest mass extinction we know of in geologic time. Well, if you just go to other times, all throughout geologic time, we find whenever you had these big basaltic lava flows, we had major warming. 
So from the 70s to the early 90s, it was the use of our CFCs, spray cans, and our air conditioning units that really caused a thinning of the ozone layer and ultimately uh, a couple of holes in that area. And I actually remember those holes, remember the news stories about it. I was a much younger man there. I was in my teens, but I absolutely remember that and that being a big issue. And that the fact that we did act very quickly and got a lot of that legislation passed, a lot of things got changed, a lot of those um, CFCs were done away with. From So from that point until, like you say, the 2014, we were not actively destroying the ozone layer or actively increasing that hole. No heat, basaltic lava flow comes in 2014, which then again starts to disrupt the ozone layer, disrupt that same hole. How do we repair it? Is there is there a way to repair it? Well, one of the, as I said, CFCs are very stable chemicals. Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate reality is that it takes decades to get them out of the atmosphere. Mm. So it was predicted way back in the 70s that, and particularly after we discovered the Antarctic ozone hole in the 80s, that it was going to be decades before the atmosphere could repair itself. And uh, so the predictions have been 2050, 60, 70, sometime in that time frame. The problem is that we've had a black market of these chemicals. Mm. Um, the Chinese were producing a lot of these chemicals to blow foam, to create foam that was just discovered in the last year. Um, they were breaking the Montreal Protocol. Uh, and so we've slowed this down. So one of the things I showed is that Without the Montreal Protocol, I think the world would probably be a half a degree warmer now than it would um, since we passed the Montreal Protocol and had this effect. So you're saying that what's in there now is going to be there for 50 years. Is there anything that we can do proactively to, to aid in fixing it, or is it just something we have to kind of wait it out? Is it a Chernobyl event? You have to wait it out until it works itself out. Well, the main thing we have to do is get rid of the black market. Mm -hmm. You have to realize that all old refrigerators, freezers, um, air conditioners use the CFCs. And you probably have a lot of those Anyone's, still left in third world countries, places that are, that are not necessarily as developed as the United States is. Yeah, and even in the United States, if you have an old car with an old air conditioner and it's not working right, you take it to your repair shop. And it turns out that black market CFCs, in order to for the repair shops to be able to fix your air conditioner, was second only to cocaine coming in through Miami. Oh. In other words, there's a huge black market right. that goes even to this day. Now, starting uh, in next year, 2020, there are rules that are going to make it not possible to get that. And so many people uh, are going to find out that when they have a problem with their air conditioner, they have to buy a new air conditioner because it doesn't use that. Now, the other thing I should point out is that it just so happens in 2019 that the ozone hole is the smallest we've seen in a long time. Nice. But what we know is that year to year, there's a lot of variation. And this year happens to be a low variation. All scientific predictions of the ozone layer say it's going to be tens of several decades, many decades before it should get back to normal. And even during In the meantime, as long as ozone is depleted, we are heating the oceans. The heat content of the ocean is going up. Mm -hmm. The temperature is not going up because we've reached a new steady state. But the heat content of the ocean is going up. And the other thing that ultraviolet B does is it vaporizes snow and ice. So we're melting glaciers a lot faster uh, if we didn't have the ultraviolet B coming in. And the holes in the ozone layer are over the poles, right? I mean, isn't that basically where they are? Yeah, and what's interesting, actually, when you look at ozone, it changes every minute. Okay. And there is a general distribution around the world. But what we find is that in the winter months, there's an increase in ozone in the polar regions. It's in the late winter spring is when the ozone depletion occurs. And so the ozone depletion is depleting an increase that occurs every winter. So during the winter, you don't have the thick ozone layer that you normally have. It suddenly is a lot thinner, which means more heat gets to, gets to ground level. And that's why the Antarctic Peninsula, for example, is where the greatest warming is occurring. And the oceans around Antarctica is where the greatest ocean warming is going on. There is a, sort of an ozone hole in the Arctic 
But the problem is because of topography, because of the mountains uh, in the continents all around the Arctic, things aren't quite as regular as they are in, in Antarctica. And so the effect is less, but it's still significant. Mm -hmm. And even what's going on in the Arctic, we can see major changes at 30 or 40 degrees north. I mean, it's biggest at the poles, but it's still significant at 30 or 40 degrees north or 30 to 40 degrees south. Again, the, the, the mid-80s, I was a teenager. And like I said, I remember the ozone debate and the ozone hole and the, what was going on at that time. And at that point, to me, at least in my memory, the general consensus was that the ozone layer was going to be the problem in terms of our global climate. But now, no one speaks of that anymore. Now it is the scientific consensus that it is greenhouse gases that are doing it. Why don't more people accept that ozone depletion theory? Well, remember earlier I talked about a major change in physics yeah. about what heat is. Greenhouse warming theory argues that there is more infrared frequencies being radiated by Earth than the frequencies of ultraviolet B reaching Earth when ozone is depleted. They calculate total energy by integrating across frequencies, by adding what they think of as the energy at every frequency. That is a fundamental mistake. What, what we now know is that ultraviolet B energy is a function of frequency. Ultraviolet B is the highest frequency reaching Earth. It's the hottest, greatest thermal energy, the hottest radiation reaching Earth. What I ran into was a buzzsaw years ago of the climate scientists saying, look, there's a lot more energy in the infrared than there is in, in the ultraviolet. And therefore, they couldn't be the cause. And when they think of ozone as a result of being a greenhouse gas, they calculate energy in a way that turns out to be wrong. So many of the scientists I'm still having trouble with trying to get seriously can't understand that, yes, is energy, the warming effect is not about amount. This is the fundamental mistake. We thought of it as an amount of heat amount of thermal energy. That's not what it's about. The warming effect of radiation is about the source of the radiation, the temperature at the source of the radiation, and the difference in temperature between the radiator and the uh, absorber. So the way you calculate heat is totally different. Most scientists don't understand this yet and refuse to to get involved with. Do you find that to be a, an overwhelming problem? Uh, just in terms of they're all intelligent people. They all think that they are right and are not willing to have an open mind about a different theory. And it, it seems to me like science almost demands that you always have that open mind and always be willing to see something new that might come in and, and it might completely change everything that you've been working on or everything that you've been thinking for your entire life. But as a scientist, you should be open to that. And it doesn't seem like we're at that point where they're, where they're open to those new ideas or potentially admitting that the science is different or they were wrong about what their conclusions are. All scientists would agree that science should, scientists should be objective. Mm -hmm. We should all be as objective as we can. But the fact is we all get used to working in a different environment. Um, and we've learned over the years that this leads to that and this makes sense and that makes sense. And so it seems to be sensible. And, everything, and then in climate, there are, there are a couple of really big problems. First of all, the scientists decided to try to develop a consensus in order to demonstrate to political leaders that they needed to spend the major money. So this was actually a political decision by scientists made in 1988 that they needed through the IPCC to demonstrate consensus in order to get the political leaders to, to take action. And this worked. The Paris Accord in, in uh, 2015 was based on the fact that there was a consensus among most scientists mm -hmm. that this was the problem. Well, politics requires consensus. Science requires debate. And the problem is the scientists not only are so convinced their science is right, but they're also sick and tired of hearing from skeptics who were not talking what the scientists considered to be good science. And, and they were beaten down by them over many, many years. I mean, there have been some very vocal skeptics who have worked very, very hard to badmouth the scientists. So the scientists are on defense. Mm -hmm. Well, when you 
believe all your life this is the way things are, and you're on defense, and you believe it's very important to the world to make changes before the world gets too hot, you're not particularly open to new ideas. There was a article in the Daily Beast a year ago, whatever, that was trying to badmouth me. And one of the quotes in that article was really kind of nice. It said, the, the problem with Ward as a skeptic is that he has a strong scientific background. Right. What I also don't have is a lifetime of thinking to defend. As you started out early saying, my specialty was earthquakes, right. volcanoes, tectonics, um, I was a very good scientist. I've managed the group of 140 scientists, 40 PhDs and staff. Um, I was on a committee at the I was chairman of a committee at the White House related to warning. I worked on a committee for Vice President Gore. I know good science. When I decided as a retiree to work on this, I didn't have to justify myself to any funding agency. I didn't I could I didn't have to go to promotion meetings. I didn't have to worry about promotion. I mean, I was retired. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to fund myself. And my only requirement to myself was, Peter, do the best science you can. And as I did it, it began to be clearer and clearer that there was a fundamental problem here. Just a few more questions, if you if you don't mind. I mean, what is the sun's role in global warming? Does the sun have a role? The sun is what warms Earth. Right. Without the sun, Earth would not be available. What's interesting is that the sun, so with the sun, it's an issue of how much radiation reaches Earth. Okay. Again, we've been talking about a much radiation in terms of amount. That turns out not to be right. What's important is what frequencies of radiation reach Earth. And the only way, when you understand Planck's law, which shows the relationship between temperature and frequency, the only way to warm Earth from its normal manner is by increasing the ultraviolet frequencies reaching Earth. You have to increase the highest frequencies, the amplitudes of oscillation of the highest frequencies. And so I can now show that from the physics, the only way to significantly change the warming of Earth from normal when we're looking at the last century or two as normal, uh, is by depleting the ozone layer and allowing more of those high frequencies to reach Earth. Okay. We're talking a lot of CO2 reduction strategies in politics. Like you said, it's a po- political stance. What is the impact that this will have? You know, we're significantly reduce our carbon footprint, uh, reduction of the greenhouse gases. What impact do you believe that this is, would actually have? Are we wasting our time? The best estimates of the cost to reduce, to keep the temperatures down to two degrees centigrade is somewhere in the tens of billions of of trillions, tens of trillions of dollars, okay? And most people are really not being honest about that. What we're talking about doing at that time is totally disrupting the flow of energy, which powers our lives, powers our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about doing, if we really go at this the way we're going to do it, is a major, major change in the flow of energy, the availability of energy, the cost of energy, and the way we promote our lives. I can say from my understanding of the physics that this will be a complete and total waste of money, that reducing greenhouse gases has zero effect on cooling the earth. And I explain that at physically-impossible.com as clearly as I can. Why greenhouse warming theory is mistaken in nine different ways, and that reducing greenhouse gas emissions will have no measurable effect on global temperatures. So thank you so much again, Dr. Ward, for joining us on the show today. Basically, what we're saying here, folks, is it's the ozone layer and the depletion of the ozone layer, and where our money should really probably be spent is reduction of that black market uh, for CFCs, uh, obviously, we can't stop basaltic lava flows. We don't. We can't predict that and can't stop that. But we can stop the things that we are doing on a daily basis that help to aggravate the problem, make it any worse than it needs to be naturally. For a very small amount of money, we could get rid of all the old CFCs. We could give people new refrigerators and new air conditioners all around the world in a trivial amount of money compared to what we're talking about wasting on greenhouse gases. 
Okay, so there are, there are many steps that we can take. And on my main website, whyclimatechanges.com, I have a whole page that talks about actions we could take. But um, they're very cheap actions, and we, could, we have a lot to learn about the ozone layer still. And we may find ways of having you know, to help, help it recover. So but again, what we're talking about spending there is trivial compared to greenhouse gases. So how can people at home find out more about, obviously, you have a book, What Really Causes Global Warming. You have your, your web pages, whyclimatechanges.com, physically-impossible.com. What else can the people at home who are listening to this, who don't believe greenhouse gases, who, who are looking for that uh, more plausible scenario that you're proposing here, what can they do to help? On the website, there's not only the web pages and there's not only papers, scientific papers. There's also extensive videos. I've recorded more than 20 five to 10 minute videos that explain each of the different areas. I wrote these videos and I wrote my book with the general public in mind. For those that don't have a background in science, they'd have to work a little bit to make sure they understand it. But I've tried very hard on the website, in the book, and in all of the different uh, talks that I give to make it understandable. What we need, what the average person needs to do is first get educated, mm -hmm. look at what I've been saying and why. And if they got a basis to disagree, that's great. I mean, I, I'm open to, you know, I, I sent an email out to almost over 30,000 people on the 4th of November, essentially challenging them to find any problem with the website physically-impossible.com because I'm trying to get the scientists to step up and say, here's the problem. We disagree with you for this reason. They won't do that. They simply will not participate. They figure it's not worth their effort. It's spam. Anything I'm talking about must be spam. So you haven't, haven't had any takers yet then? Nobody's taken a look at those and, and tried to prove it wrong? No. And in 2015, I offered $10,000 for my children's inheritance to the first scientist, first person that could show by experiment that greenhouse gases actually work. There was experiments by Newt Angstrom in 1900 that showed it didn't work. Right. I've done experiments. Um, I mean, JustProveCO2.com is another website that I have that talks about experiments, and there have never been any experiments that clearly show it. There were some reported on the uh, uh, in YouTube, but they don't use the right heat source. They use a heat source that's much, much hotter than Earth. So we've never shown by scientific experiment the greenhouse warming theory even works. That's what frustrates me so badly is that and makes me really kind of believe this is nothing more than a really a, a political stance. It's a, you know, created by different political agendas, furthered by the media, pushed forward that these are the problems. And the majority of people, 99 percent of the people in the world will never pick up a, a book or look at the Internet or listen to a podcast with a known expert in the field who gives them any other alternative idea, they're simply saying, well, the TV tells me and my, and my congressman tells me it's you know, CO2. That's what I have to worry about. No more fossil fuels to reduce my carbon footprint, and I'll be better. And they never question that. And that's actually the, kind of the point of the podcast here myself is, is to hear those other ideas, hear those other points of view. We don't have any experiments that actually ever prove the point. But that's the only point you hear. That's the one that's shoved down your face every day in the media and uh, in the political sphere. Well, it depends which media you listen to. The, oh, liberal media, the liberal media believe the scientists. The liberal politicians believe the scientists. Mm -hmm. And they take action on it. The more conservative ones tend to not like anybody to tell them the way things are. They know the <laughs> answers. And they don't believe the scientists. Uh, this has gotten us into trouble and a number of things outside of climate, but still, that's the way they think, and they, they're looking for justification of the answer that they know. Mm -hmm. We've gotten, I mean, what's happened here is science has gotten derailed. I've been a scientist all my life, and it's very important to me that the best science available be utilized to inform the best public policy available. Right, exactly. We have gotten derailed, and I am trying to get the word across to the scientists that if you don't step up to the fact that the science is changing here, you're going to be dragged over the cliff by the politicians. I'm trying to get the word to the politicians on both sides of the aisle. If the scientists are not agreeing with me, you ask them what, what's wrong with physically-impossible.com. Mm -hmm. The problem is the scientists are not taking it upon themselves to do that. 
And yet, if they do, they're going to find out that I am right. I mean, it's pretty darn clear that what I'm saying is substantially correct. And the frustration is that they're simply not listening to it. So many of the people I sent email to were were senators and congressmen and their staff who have some role in climate. And my message to them was, you ask the scientists what's wrong, because what's wrong with physically-impossible.com, because they are not stepping up to the plate. I like the fact that you can actually say, here it is. I'm confident enough in my conclusions. I've done the research. Uh, I have the evidence, and I can prove it. And kind of uh, and it opens yourself up to scrutiny and opens yourself up to somebody else coming in, coming forward and saying, this is not true in here, and this is why. And it says something to me. It really does say something that no one has taken you up on that. No one has even attempted it. Uh, it's really rare in science that you can be as definitive as to say greenhouse warming theory is not physically possible. There are not many times in science you can be that definitive. I can be that definitive. I'm willing to stand behind it. And I've explained very, very carefully in videos, papers, uh, on the website, books, what my logic is and how we get there. And if you can find me wrong, great, speak up. If you go to physically-impossible.com, at the very end, it leads you into a discussion group, a Google group for discussing process and minus of what I've said. I'm saying, please read that website and tell me where I'm wrong. All right, everybody. So Dr. Ward, the author of the book, What Really Causes Global Warming, he says it's the ozone depletion. Ozone depletion, you know, throwing it back to, again, when I was a teenager in, in the 80s, he has put a challenge out there to anybody in the scientific community, anybody in that consensus that can come here, take a look at the information that he has on physically-impossible.com and prove to him why his theory is incorrect. He used to offer $10,000, but now he just offers the warm glow of you being right and self-satisfaction. No one's taking him up on it. Once again, that's physically-impossible.com and whyclimatechanges.com and what really causes global warming. Where else can they get your, your book, Dr. War? Can they get that on Amazon? Can they get, get that on your web pages? The book is available on Amazon or any of the internet booksellers. You can also order it from me directly on my webpage, and in that case, you get an autographed copy and a few other papers uh, that would, you'll find interesting. And you also said that you were basically doing all of this research from your own funding. Is there any type of page where you accept donations or contributions towards the effort? I actually set up a page many years ago, and I decided, no, I don't want that. Oh, okay. that uh, I want to be able to look people straight in the eye and say, this is my funding, total funding. I was uh, uh, fortunate enough to be in a position where I could do it. I've spent a considerable amount of money on this. But um, the science is clear, and it has not been influenced by anybody else negatively. Or, you know, I, I have nothing to defend other than the quality of the science I'm doing. Well, thank you so much once again, Dr. Peter Langdon Ward. He's been my guest today. I really appreciate this. Hopefully we can, uh, we can get together another time. Maybe we can get together once somebody tries to take you up on that and fails miserably. How about that? <laughs> Sounds good. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay, Pete. Thank you. Thanks. So once again, that was Dr. Peter Langdon Ward. He is pushing the ozone depletion theory of global warming. And honestly, that makes more sense to me than what the CO2 greenhouse gas theory makes, because the reality is there is no correlation between rising CO2 and heat. It's more rising heat creates CO2. And I think I've said that in previous podcasts. Dr. Ward agrees with that. And he does say that it was the impact of those CFCs that we were so prone to using between the 50s and the early 90s. And then obviously volcanic activity and those basaltic lava flows that disrupt the ozone layer, damage the ozone layer, create holes in the ozone layer, which then allows in those different frequencies of UV light, which ultimately is what results in a global warming trend or a global or an increase in the temperature on the planet. What are your thoughts? I mean, are you hanging with the consensus theory, the consensus that this is strictly a greenhouse gas problem? If we reduce our CO2 emissions, the planet is going to cool? Or are you with Dr. Ward 
and think that, you know, it's the ozone layer. It is the planet's natural defense against the sun's energy that keeps us cool. And by damaging that and reducing that and depleting that, we are ultimately going to make ourselves hotter by its absence. What are your thoughts? You can definitely contact us. You can contact us on email. The email address is provemewrongcast at gmail.com. You can also send us a text or a message through our Facebook page. The Facebook page is simply Prove Me Wrong Podcast. We also have an Instagram page, Prove Me Wrong. And if you're just looking for content, you can reach us on the podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, really anywhere that you find podcasts, you can find the Prove Me Wrong Podcast. Also, like us on those platforms as well so that you can get notifications when new podcasts come out. We typically release our podcast once a week, so it is something that you know, you'll get a notification, and it's kind of how we know who's out there listening. So if you like what you hear, you like the podcast, like us on Facebook, like us on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you get your podcast information, and make sure that you are the first to hear the Prove Me Wrong podcast when it is released. Before we go, I do want to say that this episode of the Prove Me Wrong podcast is brought to you by Zendozone Citronella Burners from J.T. Eaton. Zendozones are shaped like fearless little tiki gods, and let Surf and Stan, Hawaiian Howie, and Luau Lily bring the islands to your backyard with Zendozone Citronella Burners. Zendozones uses 3% citronella candles and incense cones. They're perfect for patios, decks, backyards, campsites, pool sides, and more. You can enjoy the outdoors again. They are available now on Amazon and at Ace Hardware, and you can collect them all today. So again, for my guest, Dr. Peter Langdon Ward, this is Pete Lieb, and this has been the Prove Me Wrong Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.